Great to see you this morning. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year for those of you who hadn't had that greeting yet. And I wondered after last week if anybody would show back up. So it's good to see you. I'm glad you're back. Um, the bad news is, is that it might get worse today. <laughs> and so here we go. We're in week one of the gospel, what it means to be lost. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Gladiator. Um, I talk about it fairly often. Great movie, high body count, got everything a guy would want in a movie. And so uh, here's, how, here's how the opening scenes unfold. The, the movie starts and the Roman army is doing what the Roman army does best. They are destroying everything in their path. I mean, they have got the art of war down to a science. And so uh, they have got this, this army on the other side. They are squared off. And all of a sudden, it looks like World War III breaks out. I mean, there are things flying across the screen that I've never seen before. And they win the battle, kind of this phenomenal little opening scene. And then it takes its downhill slide. Um, the downhill slide looks like this, that the aging emperor knows he's about to die. And rather than giving the reign to the kingdom to his weasel and the half of a son, he knows he's a weasel, right? So rather than giving the reign to the kingdom to him, he, he looks at his, uh, this commander of the army, Maximus, and he says, listen, you're going to be the next guy. Think about it, ponder it. You're the guy I want to hand this thing off to. And so that deal is struck and the son, the weasel, finds out. Before anybody else does. Three people know. And so now all of a sudden you've got this chain of events that happens that is absolutely brutal. The son kills his dad, the emperor. He grabs Maximus, has his soldiers arrest him, tries to kill Maximus. But can you kill the gladiator? No, you can't kill right? You can't do that. He evades it, right? Okay, now, now he knows that his family is going to be next on the hit list. So he goes home as fast as he can and... and finds basically his wife murdered and his son. Brutal opening scene. This beautiful kind of takes you up on the roller coaster and then drops you, right? And so now I want you to know by design, that is the opening chapters of the gospel. And that is like this, this morning. The design this morning and the intent is to take us up to the top and to drop us. And so here's what we're trying to do this morning. We're going to try to unpack what the gospel is, a general summary of what it means when we say the gospel. And then we're going to try to explain this opening phrase, what it means to say that we have sinned. Unpopular, not politically correct, that we're sinful people. Not just that we do sin, but that we are sinful. We're going to try to unpack that and figure out what the Bible means when it says that. Okay, now, now let me just preface all that with this. As bitter as this morning may sound to you, it is what makes the gospel glorious. And it is what makes the gospel sweet to the taste. So hang in there. Don't despair. All right? Okay, so we're going to start in, in 1 Corinthians 15. So you might put a thumb there, and then you might put one in Romans chapter 3. That'll kind of be home base for us. So as you're flipping to, to Romans 15, let me read this quote from you by a good friend to all who love the gospel and who love Jesus. His name is Martin Luther, um, the reformer. He said this, commenting on Galatians 2.14. Martin Luther said this about the gospel. The truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. The truth of the gospel is the principal article of all all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article, the gospel well, that we can teach it to others and that we do teach it to others and that we beat it into their heads continually. That's what we should 
when we think gospel, we should think that. That it's the center point of the Bible. It is the central article of what it means to be a Christian. That we need to be able to teach it. That we need to beat it into our heads and the heads of others on a daily basis. Oh, that we would be a place and a people that know the gospel, that teach it, and that can live it in front of each other. That can pound it into each other's heads. And this is why that's so important. 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses go like this. Um, and we're just going to pick out some things on the gospel. This is about the gospel. Paul's saying this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, here's your first thing about the gospel. The gospel must be continually recalled. It is the principal article, and we need to beat it into our heads because we are prone to forget the gospel. Paul is speaking to a church. He's not speaking to somebody that's not converted. He's not speaking to people who hate Jesus. He is speaking to people in the church, to believers, and he is saying, listen, you need to be reminded of, you need to recall the beautiful gospel. You need to think on these things. You are prone to forget it, keep it in front of you, pound it into your heads daily. You need to recall the gospel. The gospel must be continually recalled. Um, Let's go on. Now, I want to remind you, brothers. And then he says this, of the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. The gospel is good news. That's what it is. That's what it literally means. Gospel equals great news. And listen, news has the ability to make a difference in our life. I mean, imagine this scenario. Imagine that you walk up to a prisoner of war camp. It's got American soldiers into it. Okay, you look at this camp and you've got otherwise healthy men that look like corpses. They're starving to death. They're gaunt. Their faces are sunk in. I mean, they look like just bones with flesh wrapped around them. There's some of them that die each day. And in that camp, they discover a radio. And all of a sudden, they hear news that liberation is around the corner, that American forces are near. The guards look around through the barbed wire, over their guns, and and they see something odd. These same people, still starving, still gaunt, still looking like corpses. They now grab the pots and pans. They've now got them up in the air, and they're now rejoicing and laughing. That is the difference that news makes. When we hear great news of liberation and freedom, it produces something in us. That's the difference. News: The gospel is great news. The greatest news that has ever hit planet Earth. That's the gospel. Let's keep going. Now, I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And then here's the third thing that I preach to you. The gospel must be preached. Your neighbors can know that you're a great guy and not know the gospel. Your neighbors can know that you're a moral guy and not know the gospel. Your neighbors can know that you treat your wife well and not know the gospel. The only way the gospel spreads is for men and women to speak it, to deride it, to proclaim it. It can only spread through lips. That is it. It must be preached. So so God sends the church on a mission. And at the center of the, the mission of the church is the gospel message. To preach the gospel. I mean, that, that is the mission of the church. It must be preached. Here's the next one. He says, I preach to you. And then he says this, which you received. The gospel is personal. The gospel is not imparted to you. The benefits and the blessings of the gospel are not imparted on family pedigree. It doesn't matter if your parents know. If they, it, it's a personal thing. The gospel is personal. 
It's not only personal, but it saves. Look at what he says here. The gospel that I preach to you must be received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. The great news of the gospel is it pronounces our liberation. That we can be saved. That the effects of the curse, the effects of sin can be reversed. That is the beauty of the gospel, that it saves. That's what the gospel does for us. Next one, it's, it's easily lost. Look at what he goes on to say. In which you stand and by which you are easily saved. Into verse 2. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. The word is the gospel. If you hold fast to the gospel. And here's what he's implying there. The gospel is easily lost. The gospel has always had many competitors, many counterfeits. And in each generation, in each culture, it must continually be defined biblically and articulated with clarity and compassion. Or it will be easily lost to you, to me. It will be easily lost in the midst of a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that makes a mockery of biblical teaching, by the way. It will be easily lost in a moralistic gospel that says you just do enough good things and you'll earn God's favor. It's always had competitors. It must be clearly defined, clearly articulated. It's not only easily lost, but it is central. Look at what Paul says here. Verse 2, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you the gospel. I delivered to you as a first importance. The gospel is central. It is the central doctrine of what it means to be a Christian. It is the essential teaching. This is the center point of the Bible. It's the center point of every book of the Bible. It's the center point of every scripture, every verse, every word. It is the scarlet thread that unites Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible together. The gospel is central. We have to know it. We cannot lose it. We have got to know the central piece. I I think I've heard this the other day that um, information on planet Earth is expanding at a rate that it's never known before. I mean, there are all sort of peripheral details you can know about life. But this is the central thing for you to have your head wrapped around. You can miss seventh grade algebra and be okay. You miss the gospel, it's eternal. This is not something you can miss. It is central. Okay, let's go to the next one. It's also eternal. Look what he says in verse 3. For I delivered to you of first importance what I received. I received it. I passed it along. My parents received it. They passed it along. One generation receives and they pass it to the next. Um, the, The word of God says this about itself, that it will last forever. And the word of God in its essence is the gospel. So here's what it's saying. The gospel lasts forever. It is eternal. The flower fades, but the word of the God lasts forever and the gospel is a forever thing it is eternal let's go to the next one it provides a substitute um let's keep reading here for i delivered to you as a first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins the gospel provides a perfect sinless substitute and here's what that means it means the wrath of god was aimed at earth aimed at you aimed at your sin And Jesus, the sinless substitute, takes our place on the cross. This is what Luther called the great exchange. That God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, sinless, perfect. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The great exchange. The gospel provides a perfect substitute. And the last one. 
The gospel is biblical. Look at what it says. For Christ died for our sins. And it says this phrase twice. In accordance with the scriptures, verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is biblical. It is the center point of the Bible. The Bible is what teaches it. The Bible has as its essence in the center of it the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is it. Now here's what I find very interesting. I think I could go to church after church this morning and I think I could give pieces of paper out and I think I could say, write down the gospel for me. What's the gospel? And I think I would have faces look back at me like, what are you asking me to write here? I mean, I, 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 you, well, I don't know what, what, this is the center piece of the Bible. This is everything. And we need to know what the gospel is. Amen. We need to know what it is. That should not be a thing we have to think about. That should be a thing that rolls off of our lips. This is the great and glorious gospel by which we're saved. It is essential. It is the centerpiece. It's biblical. It provides the substitute. It saves us. This is the great and glorious gospel. We should know this. So my hope for the next four weeks is by the end of it, We know it. It would roll off of our lips that this is the great and glorious gospel of the Bible. So here we go. Here's the definition of it. I'm going to leave it up for a few minutes. You can write it down if you want. Um, Here would be a working definition of the gospel. The just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people. That's our phrase for this morning. Sound encouraging, right? Okay, looked upon hopelessly sinful people. And this, it makes this beautiful though. And sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. Isn't that beautiful? That is our great and glorious gospel that we need to have tucked in our hearts That's what it is. I'm going to leave that up there. You can write it as uh, I kind of introduce. We're going to flip to Romans chapter 3 in your Bible. Um, Romans chapter 3 is going to kind of be home base for us over the next couple of weeks. um, Because Romans is about the gospel. Um, In Romans 1.16, Paul gives the theme of the book. "For, For I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I mean, I'm not ashamed of the thing that saves, that's central, that's everything. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he goes on to say, for it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. It is the power of God for salvation. Then he unpacks the gospel for us. And here's where he starts with the gospel. The gospel begins with God. The first words in the Bible are in the beginning God. The gospel starts with God, that he is a creator. Romans 1.20 tells us that, that he created all things. And as a sovereign creator, he has rights over his creation. He can do as he wishes on this planet with us. We are his creation. He is the sovereign creator, according to Romans 1.20. Romans 2 is going to open up and it's going to get this point across, that not only is he a sovereign creator, but he is also a great and glorious judge who does not look upon sin lightly, but comes at it with fury. And it wants to make this point very clear, that make no mistake about it, that there will be a day that our deeds are accounted for. There will be that day. Romans 2, 1 through 10. That day's coming. Romans 3 um, gets to this glorious fact, that our great God is not only just, but he is also gracious. 
Romans 3.24 says that um, he freely justifies us with his grace as a gift. Our God is not just just, he is also gracious. So the, so the Bible starts, it unpacks the gospel. It starts with God. Now, l- listen to this though. It doesn't start with you and I. It doesn't start with, do you want wealth, health, and prosperity? It doesn't start with, do you want joy in your life? It doesn't start with, um, do you want peace? And do you want life? And do you, it doesn't start with that. It starts with God is sovereign. He is just. He is the creator. And he is gracious. It starts with God. And then it moves to this. That we are sinful. And not just sinful, but we are hopelessly sinful. That the point of Romans 1, after verse 16, all the way to Romans 3.23 is to say this for us. That you, not like y'all, not you plural, but you specifically... Rodney, you are a sinful person. That's what, that's what the first two chapters of Romans want to get across. Really encouraging stuff. I mean, I'm telling you, I just love, I mean, you know, that you are sinful. Okay, the first chapter, it gets across this fact. Gentiles, all you non-Jewish people, you know what you've done? You've exchanged the glory of God for created things. You're sinning. Chapter two, Jews. You think you're missing this? You've got the oracles of God. You have been blessed to be in the family of, you know what you've done? You've walked out on that and you have rebelled. You're sinless, you're sinful people. Okay, Romans 3 verse 9, look at that. He's going to make this declarative statement. That here's what we just charged you with in Romans 1 and 2. That you are sinful, both Gentiles and Jews. You're sinful people. And not just that you do sin, but you are, your condition is sinful. Okay, then let's pick it up in verse 19. It goes like this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And this is how we are born. We are born under the law. The law is our standard. Your neighbor is not your standard. The law is our standard. God's perfection is our standard. We're all under the law, it says. And here's why it puts it that way. So that every mouth may be stopped. We all have this justifying voice that wants us to look better than we really are. And the law laid over our life is intended to stop our mouth so we cannot justify ourselves. So that we cannot look at our neighbor as if we're better. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's the theme of the first three chapters. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. He's saying that, listen, the best of you, like Isaiah says, the best of you, your works are like filthy rags in my sight. They disgust me. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Here's the summary of the first three chapters. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you believe that? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's what he's saying, that sin is a universal, not just a, but sin is the universal problem. AIDS is a problem. Sin is the problem. 
War is a problem. Sin is the problem. Domestic disputes are a problem. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. Longhorn fans are a problem. Especially when they're winning. I've really got to stop doing that, right? Okay, but listen to me. It's saying, listen, sin is the problem on the planet. Sin is it. That is where the problem lies. That is the heart of it. Okay, so now here's where we need to go. We need to figure out what sin is biblically. So let me go two places for that. Number one, we're going to go to 1 John 3, 4. It's going to be up on the screen for you. If you want to flip there, you can. If not, you can look at it on the screen. So answering the question, what is sin? So we've all sinned. What does it mean to say that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Here's what it means. Here's the first part of this. Answer one. Definition one would go like this. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And it defines sin. John defines sin like this. Sin is lawlessness. So, okay, one way you could define sin would go, okay, here, here it is. Sin is breaking God's law. Okay, now this is really easy to see. Like, this doesn't take a rocket science at all. I mean, this just takes looking around, right? And so the easiest way to illustrate this is just to bring in the Ten Commandments. Like, they serve as a great judge for us. And so when we bring in commandment three through eight, the last eight commandments, we're all messed up. We are all in serious trouble. If our standard is honor your mom and dad, if you've got a teenage kid right now, how well does that go for you? And just remember, dads, you were a teenager at one point. Your parents probably would have said the same thing about you, right? Okay, if if we're going to say that this is our standard... And that any, like if we miss it by an inch, we're dead. If this is our standard, um, don't commit adultery. Jesus raises the bar. Don't lust. Don't harbor it in your heart. How well is that going for you? Okay, if our standard is don't murder, Jesus raises the bar, says don't harbor hatred. Even with in-laws, right? How was that going for you? Don't covet. How was that going for you? Don't lie. Even white ones, right? Those little ones that just slip out without us even knowing it to make us look a little better than we really... Don't lie. How well is that going? Okay, you see the picture here. That when we lay our life under the Ten Commandments we see that we are lawbreakers. That we shake our fist at God in defiance saying, I don't care what laws you've made, I'll live my own. I'll create my own. Sin is breaking God's law. Okay, but now listen to me. That, that is, maybe a better way for you to think about this one is that is the fruit of sin. But there is a deeper element to sin. So, okay, before you think of sin as an action, you need to think of it as an affection. Okay, your affection is the root of sin. Your actions are the fruit of it. Okay, there's a massive difference. So, so let me give you the second definition. This is going to come out of uh, Jeremiah 2. This is the best definition, I think, of sin in the Bible right here. Jeremiah 2 says this about sin. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. He's saying this. Be scared at what I'm about to tell you. You should shake in your boots at what I'm about to tell you. 
declares the Lord, verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. So Jeremiah is going to say, listen, you want to boil all sin down? It comes down to two things. This is what sin really is. These two things. Number one, they have forsaken me. They have turned their back on me. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living living water. That is a metaphor to say they have turned their back on the one thing that will lead them to joy. The one thing that will sustain them. The one place that they can find satisfaction. They have turned their backs on me. And this is what they've done. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Okay, so this is how Jeremiah would define sin. He would say it this way. It's forsaking God as your source of life and pleasure for anything else. It's a matter of affection. We turn from the God, the living waters, and we think that we can make our own little God, and that little God's going to satisfy us. That we'll turn our back from our first love, and we'll, we'll, we'll run after any love that will present itself here. Okay, that is the essence of sin. That is sin at its root. It's a matter of affection. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you are created in the image of God. Your job is to mirror forth, to reflect the glory of God. And your joy will be found in that job. That is where your joy is found. In the job of glorifying God. But here's what you've done. You've turned your back on God, on the God, and you have elevated all these peripheral things to the place of God in your life. You've elevated all these side issues to the place of primacy. Okay, so here's how this works out. Um, Pornography is an action, but it's just a a fruit of sin. Like, Like the root of pornography is, I have turned from God and I'm trying to make cisterns out of lust and pleasure. Like I'm taking really a God created thing, sex, pleasure. I'm taking a God-created thing and I'm elevating it to the place of primacy. I'm making one of God's gifts into a God in my life. And in doing so, I'm turning from God and I'm turning toward it. That is the essence of sin. That is why pornography is rampant. Because we have turned from God as the source of living water and life and satisfaction to something other. Okay, this is why in Romans, Paul is going to say this. Gentiles, you have sinned, and here's what your sin looks like. You have exchanged the glory of God, the beauty of God, the wonder of God, the satisfaction of God. You have forsaken, you have exchanged the fountain of living water for lesser loves. That's what sin is. It's a matter of affection, that we love things, we have elevated things, we have made things ultimate that are not God. Even, okay, look at this. Even good things. Your family is a great gift to you. For me, my spouse is a, Laura is a great gift from God. You know what I have a tendency to do? To allow that gift to become a God. Your kids are great gifts. They make horrible gods. When you make them a God, you destroy them. That's what you do. So Jeremiah is saying, listen, this is what sin is. Before it's an action, it is an affection. Turning from God to something, thinking that that broken cistern is going to satisfy us when it's leaky. That's the essence of sin. Okay, now, so, so here's what's just happened in here. Um, we've said that we've all sinned. 
We've fallen short of the glory of God. Here's what sin is. It's lawlessness. It's breaking God's law. And it's turning from God as the source of satisfaction in life to anything else. And you know what happens in a room like this when we do that? You know what happens? Nothing. I, I think this is what happens. We shake our heads and say, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Heard something kind of like that before. I want to give you two reasons why I think that it do, like the weight of sin doesn't land on us with the crushing force that the Bible says it should. Okay, what we just covered there, that should crush us under the weight of it. It is meant biblically to do that. And I, I'll give you two reasons why I don't think for a lot of us it does. Um, here would be the first one. That, that we get really confused on what the word good means, right? And so um, it, it leads to some wild statements. Like we'll say stuff like this. Well, what about um, my dad? He was good. Surely that, that surely God wouldn't punt. Okay, what about this Muslim? He was good. They didn't really have... What about this guy? He's a Hindu, but he lives in India, and he's a good guy, though. So we say all these statements. Good has this real relative feeling to it. Like it has this feeling of, um, well... I mean, compared to others, like they, they are pretty good. And, and here's the brutal thing about like this idea of good is that typically we can see really quickly in other people, good and evil. It's really hard to see it in ourselves. We all have this justifying voice in our brain. You know that voice? I know that voice. That voice that makes me sound better than I am, right? That when I'm caught red-handed makes... I, it puts the spin on everything to make me look like, well, I just kind of sort of, I was a victim, right? Like, sure, that was their fault. I mean, we all had, have y'all ever seen To Catch a Predator? Y'all remember that show? I mean, craziest show I've ever seen. Let me, I'll give you the background of it. Um, this guy named Chris Hansen, he sets up this undercover sting, right? And they hire these people to get in, in these chat rooms and pose as underage boys and girls, 12, 13 years old. They jump into these chat rooms and instantly these men I mean, they are all over it. They get into this dialogue. They clearly identify themselves as underage. They set up a meeting and a grown man comes into this house to have sex with a 13-year-old boy or girl. That's the, okay, that's how this unfolds. They hear a, a, a boy or girl's voice, depending on kind of what they've been chatting with. Then Chris Hansen walks out. And you know what's amazing to me? Listen to what, they, listen to how they respond. They are caught red handed. You are in a house that you had arranged in a chat room talking to a 13 year old. And like literally, you hear stuff like this come out. I, I was just kind of passing through. You're in the kitchen of a home that's not your own. Um, I thought the house was for sale. Really? Are you kidding me? The house is for sale and you just kind of walk. I mean, really? I mean, you hear these crazy justifications. Now listen, that voice is in you. It's in me. Making us all appear better than we are. So here's how this plays out. When we think good, we've kind of got this, this conception of it that's not necessarily biblical. And in Luke 18, the rich young ruler had the same thing. He comes to Jesus. I think this verse is going to be on the screen for you. He comes to Jesus and he says this. The ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. So he's automatically saying, Jesus is saying, listen, your definition of good and my definition of good, they are completely different definitions. We have a wildly different idea of this. And so here's what happens to us. We look around and think, well, I haven't been on to catch a predator. I mean, my neighbor down the street, Bill, I mean, he is next to scumbag in the dictionary, right? I mean, this guy not only breaks the commandments, he parades them proudly. I mean, if we're on a level playing field, I've got to be in the category of good, right? I mean, so, okay, and here's what just happened when we do that. Our definition of good and God's just took a departure. I mean, they just separated on us. Um, this is a, a guy, I heard a guy illustrate it this way. I think it's the best way I've heard. I have got a 21-month-old daughter. And listen, that little girl's getting kind of wiry and kind of powerful, you know? Like, you turn her loose in a room right now and just leave for 10 minutes. You would swear that 19 grown men were in there with baseball bats, all right? I, I don't know how she does it. Things are strung out everywhere. Okay, so she's got a little bit of, of wiriness to her, right? Okay, now she's getting to be a little bit smart. Like she knows that A says all, B says bus, C says cut. She's getting down the alphabet a little bit. She's starting to string a word or two together. I mean, she for 21-month-old, like I would say, you know, I mean, she's, if we're on a bell curve, she might be on the front end of the bell curve right now. You know what I'm saying? Okay, now, um, if she's playing in her room, it feels like for her that she is in control, that she is powerful. I mean, she's got the room. I mean, this, this room is her room, right? I mean, if anybody is smart in this room, it's not the plastic little kitchen thing that she's playing with. It's her. Okay, we can even bring Caleb into the room. He's eight weeks old. All he can do is cry, dirty his diaper, and eat, right? I mean, he doesn't have a whole lot going for him yet. So if we bring Caleb into the room, I mean, if Hannah and Caleb are there, I mean, if we're on a bell curve, Hannah is at the front of this. If anybody's powerful, it's Hannah. If anybody is smart, I mean, Caleb can just coo, right? I mean, she, she can say, hey, at least. So she's on the front end of this. Okay, now look at me. Until her dad opens the door and comes in the room. Then everything changes. The fact that she can say A looks really stupid as her dad strings together sentences and paragraphs. And the fact that she's powerful next to an eight-week-old, her dad could still destroy her, right? When her dad walks in the room, a new standard hit the room. A new a new bar has been set for what it means to be powerful, what it means to be smart. If I were to compare your life and my life to Isaiah, I would guess that Isaiah wins. I mean, if we're just on the morality scale, I'm going to guess he's more moral than you and I. I mean, okay, God tells Isaiah, go and preach to a people that aren't going to listen to you. I mean, have fun preaching, but they're not going li- to respond. They're going to want to kill you, as a matter of fact. Have fun preaching. He goes, he does it. I mean, if Isaiah, you and I, we're here, Isaiah's there, I'm picking Isaiah. That's all I'm saying. He's on my team. Okay, now, now listen to me though. In Isaiah 6, God walks into the room with Isaiah. And Isaiah falls to the floor 
and says, woe is me. What looked so good, especially compared to these guys. Woe is me for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My best deeds are like filthy rags when the righteousness of God is in the room. So, okay, so just hear this this morning. That I'm not good. I may be better than my neighbor. But when God walks into the room, I am sinful. When God walks into your room, a new bar is set. And that bar is perfection. And we're sinful. And not just us, but you are sinful. Okay, here's the second reason. One is that we have kind of this misunderstanding of what it means to be good. And the second is this. Is that I think when we break God's laws, like when, when we sin, we break the Ten Commandments. We, we have this idea that it's kind of an impersonal law, right? Okay, so let me illustrate it this way. Um, when you drove here, I'm going to bet the majority of you this morning, you, you come into church. I'm going to bet the majority of you sped at some point. I mean, the speed limit was 25 and you did 27. The speed limit was 65 and you went 67. I'm going to guess that some of you broke that law. Okay, now here's what I'll also guess. I doubt any of you have, have lost any sleep over that since you've been here. I mean, I don't think any of you have thought, man, I went two miles an hour over. Who do I need to go apologize to? I mean, I doubt any of you said that, right? Like, probably not going to happen in this room. Uh, and, and here's why. I mean, who are we going to go? Are we going to go track down a city councilman or a congressman? I mean, who we, I don't even know who to apologize to for that, right? So it's got this, it just feels really impersonal. And I think when we think of the laws of God, that it feels impersonal. Like, okay, so I stole something. Sorry. Okay. Well, I think we're okay though now. Like it was a paperclip, seriously. Okay, so I lied. It was a white line. Nobody was hurt. So I think we get this feel that it's a real impersonal law that we're breaking. Okay, there are some wild stories in the Bible. Um, you, you read one about Elijah. I can feel Elijah's pain. He was going bald. Actually, he was bald, right? Like, it's happening. Genetics really are stacked against me here. And so uh, Elijah is walking down the road, and all of a sudden, a group of teenage punks walk out on that road with him. They start mocking his baldness. You believe that? Kids do. Can you believe that? They start making fun of the fact that he's bald. This is a bald man. We're going to harass him about it and here's what he does he calls down curses on him and a bear comes out of the woods and mauls 23 kids to death can you believe that that's in your bible right there okay even crazier than that the book of hosea goes like this god appears to a righteous man hosea he's a man of integrity god appears to hosea and he says hosea I want you to go and marry Gomer. I want you to pursue her. I want you to romance her. I want you to woo her. And I want you to bring her in and lavish her with all of your riches. Go get her. As an aside, she's a prostitute. You go buy her out of her prostitution and you make her your own. 
he goes and buys her. Things are working out great. I mean, right? Like they would be on the video in the church. This is what God can do, right? I mean, this is, this is the picture of what God can do. In a ma- she falls off the deep. I mean, she walks off the cliff. She runs out on him. He has wooed her, romanced her, brought her in, lavished her with blessings. His riches are hers. She runs out on him, sells herself back into prostitution. Now, let's stop. If you're Hosea, how would you feel? How would you feel? If I'm Hosea, I'm on the warpath, right? I am angry. I am hurt. My heart is broken. I just want to sit down under a rock and cry, right? And the message of Hosea goes like this. God looks at Israel and says, you are Gomer. You are a whore to your great groom. I am Hosea. When we walk out, turn our back on God, it is a groom looking at his bride, the church, heartbroken. Sin is not an impersonal breaking of God's law. It is breaking personal laws of a personal God. God says, I am the groom. You are the bride. So my hope for you is that you would see the weight of that. Okay, this is what God's going to say about sin. In Deuteronomy 9, he's going to say that he's angry over sin. In Genesis 6, it says that he is grieved over it. In Romans 2, that we are storing up wrath because of it. In Exodus 32, that he's angry enough at sin that he will punish it. In Matthew 10, 28, that ultimately God is so angry and angered at sin that he has created hell, everlasting torment. That's what hell is, to punish it. That is the groom heartbroken over the bride. Personal laws of a personal God being broken. Oh, that we would feel the weight of that. Let me end with this and we're out. The effects of sin in our life. Number one, the effects of sin go like this, that it separates us from God. Romans 3 says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is connected to the presence of God. And God is saying, listen, when you sinned, it has separated us. It has separated the bride and the groom. I have lavished you with the blessings in the garden. And because you have sinned, it has separated us. The first words after, the, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden were God saying, where are you? And, and then it ends with God throwing them out of the garden, separating them. And that is what sin does. It separates us from God. Listen, sin is not necessarily our problem. The, the problem with sin is that it separates us from our groom, from our husband. It separates us from God. Sin separates. But it not only does that, sin also causes us to be dead. We are dead in our sin. And that means that spiritually, we are unable to make a move toward God. Ephesians says that we are dead, Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. It would equate us spiritually to like Lazarus in the tomb. 
We cannot breathe spiritually. We cannot make a movement toward God. We can do nothing but wait for the gracious voice of God to call forth and to breathe life into us. We are dead in our sin. And then the last one, we are deserving of the wrath of God. That's the effect of sin. It is as if we are standing before a dam a thousand miles wide and a thousand miles tall. And it is bursting before us. Romans 2 says we are storing up wrath for ourselves on that day. That is the picture. And that is what it means to be lost. That is what it means to be lost. That we would feel the weight of that. Let's pray. I want to ask you a question as we kind of wrap this morning up. Can you feel that? Can you feel the weight of sin? You know, I think when we think wrath, a lot of times we think of um, fireworks and bombs, right? But Romans 1 presents the wrath of God as just letting people go, callousing their hearts, And my prayer and hope for you today is that God would be gracious enough to us to allow us to see we are sinful. We have broken God's law, that we have turned from God thinking that we can find satisfaction and joy in other things. That that it's an affection problem. That God would let us see that. That we are not good people. We're not. When God walks into the room, we are sinful people. And God would help us see that our sin breaks the heart of a personal groom. Oh, that God would be gracious enough to do that. Doesn't that sound so discouraging? But maybe that is the grace of God over our life. Because until we feel that... We cannot experience the beauty of the gospel. Until we can taste the bitterness of sin, we will never taste the sweetness of the grace of God. So I pray that God would be gracious to you today. I pray that he would would help you feel. The Holy Spirit would weigh down on you the weight of, I'm sinful. I'm sinful. I am in need of a Savior. It drives me crazy that everybody memorizes 323, Romans. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 24 goes on. But are justified by His grace as a gift. That's the next chapter that we are justified, made right before God, our sinful deeds washed away, paid for on a cross, that we are justified, reconciled to God. The penalty has been exhausted. The wrath of God exhausted. We are made right with God, justified by His grace, the beautiful gospel by which He sends His Son Jesus, slaughtered on a cross, raised from the dead, We are justified by His grace as a gift. 
So God, I pray that you would help us see that today. God, our sin, your grace. Our sin, your substitution. And if today, um, I want to make sure we throw this in. If today the weight of that sin, maybe this is like the first time that the Holy Spirit has grabbed your heart in such a way that he is saying, you need me. You have not been saved. You need me. God stands ready and willing to justify by his grace as a gift to make you right, to hide your sinful deeds behind the cross of Christ. God stands ready and willing as we offer our lives in complete surrender, joyful surrender to him. So on your guest card, there is a box that says how to establish a relationship with Jesus. We would love to start that dialogue with you. So if that's applicable this morning, if the Holy Spirit's moving in that way, I would encourage you to check that box. God, be gracious. God, will you be gracious to us? God, we want to know the gospel. God, it's the central principle of Christianity. God, may we know it well. May we teach it to others. And will you beat it into our heads continually the next three weeks? In Jesus' name, amen.